everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history and today we are going to be talking about the case of Tiffany Cole. Now this case, it is pretty horrific. It involves victims being buried alive. Yep, um, the thought of this happening to anyone is truly terrifying and it must be like everyone's worst nightmare. I think it truly is one of the worst things that you could do to another human being. Like how can you bury someone alive? And the things that happen in today's case have really just stayed with me. There are just sometimes some cases that never leave you and the case of Tiffany Cole is one of them. And following the horrific crimes, Tiffany Cole, the main perpetrator in this case, also ended up becoming the youngest woman in the US on death row. So today's case is not a nice one, so let's dive in. So Tiffany Ann Cole was born on the 3rd of December 1981, making her a Sagittarius. And she grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, with her parents Shirley and David Duncan. Her parents did get divorced when she was quite young, and this did have quite a significant impact on Tiffany. And following the divorce, she actually spent a lot of her childhood going back and forth between her mom and dad. She would stay at her mom's for a little bit, then she would go to her dad's house. And she just never really felt like she had a stable home. She just never really felt settled. And Tiffany has said that she never really felt like she had a childhood. She had to grow up very fast. She had to take on a lot of responsibilities, especially when she was living with her mom, because she had to take on almost that motherly role and look after her younger siblings. Now, at some point, Tiffany's mom did meet a new man. I don't quite know when, but this man, Tiffany's stepfather, was very violent and abusive. Now, it's not actually known if he was physically violent and abusive towards Tiffany, but he was to her younger brother and Tiffany had to witness a lot of this abuse, which obviously witnessing abuse is also abuse in itself. And she just felt completely powerless in the situation. She felt like there was just absolutely nothing she could do. And not only the abuse to her younger brother, she actually did witness some pretty significant animal abuse. And I'm really sorry, I hate talking about anything to do with animals. I know a lot of you guys do as well. Skip forward like 30 seconds. Tiffany watched her stepfather throw a puppy against a wall and he threw this puppy so hard that the puppy's neck broke. And I don't actually know if the puppy died, but I think he did. And oh God, that's just... It's just horrible. And quite understandably, this had a lasting impact on her, which I can completely understand that would have an impact on anybody. Despite all of this though, Tiffany tried as best as she could to have a somewhat normal childhood. She actually excelled in school. She got really good grades. She also played the flute in the school band and she was in the Girl Scouts and a cheerleader. And like I said, we don't actually know if her stepfather physically abused Tiffany. However, we do know that her biological father did sexually abuse her. And Tiffany has reported that the sexual abuse started when she was around 16. And Tiffany actually told her mom about the sexual abuse, but her mom didn't believe her, which is just the worst thing ever when you confide in someone and they just just don't believe you. And because of this, it actually resulted in Tiffany running away from home. And I don't quite know where she was living. Uh, I couldn't find it out, but I do know during the period where she wasn't at home, she had a very 
very tough time. She did fall into the wrong crowd, you could say. She got into a string of unhealthy, very toxic relationships. She also started to abuse alcohol and drugs. But Tiffany has said that the alcohol and the drugs were what she used to cope with the trauma. Now, at some point, Tiffany did eventually find out that her biological father had terminal cancer. And by this time, Tiffany was back at home living with her mom. And I'm not really sure about the living situation, but all I know is that Tiffany and her mom did end up looking after her dad. They did care for him. So I'm not sure if he like moved into their house or maybe they just went to his house like all the time every day or something like that. But I cannot even imagine how traumatic that would have been for Tiffany after what she had gone through at the hands of her biological father and then having to care for him. I, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Tiffany did continue on through her early 20s to care for her dad and while she was caring for her dad she did grow closer to an older couple who were Carol Sumner and James Reginald Sumner, who also goes by Reggie. They were neighbors and also friends of Tiffany's biological father. And because Tiffany was caring for her father, they kind of knew the situation that was going on. So they were there for Tiffany. They looked after Tiffany. They just looked out for her as if she was their own daughter. And Carol and Reggie were in their late fifties at this point, and they had gotten married later on in life. And at this point in the story, they had only been married for a few years. And Carol and story, their love story. Um, I don't know, it's just like something from a film. Like, it's just so unbelievable. I know not everyone believes in soulmates, but I don't know, it's, it is like they're soulmates. So Reggie and Carol actually used to date when they were in high school, they were in the same year. And then when they were 16, for some reason, they went their separate ways, they broke up. They both got married to different people. Reggie joined the Navy and this is where he worked for most of his life. And he did get married to a woman. I don't know any details about that marriage, but I know at some point they did get divorced. And Carol also got married to somebody else. And she went on to have children from this marriage. However, Carol's marriage to this man, don't know any details about him, uh, was not good to say the least. Carol's husband was very abusive and her marriage also did end in divorce. And then what happened after the divorce, I honestly cannot believe because after she got divorced from her husband, an absolutely terrifying incident happened. Her ex-husband pulled out a gun on Carol and shot her several times. And then at some point, I think he left the house. I don't really know much details about this. I think he shot her in her house. He left the house, drove away, and then he turned the gun on himself and he took his own life. Her husband did intend to kill her. She had been shot several times, but she did have a blood transfusion and amazingly she survived from this. And then such a cruel twist to this story. Like honestly, it really does work out, doesn't it? That the worst things happen to the best people. It turns out that the blood that Carol had received from her blood transfusion was infected with hepatitis C. This obviously infected Carol and then at some point, I don't know, this turned into Carol having liver cancer. I don't know the ins and outs of that. I'm not an expert on that, but that is just what I read. And that is just such a cruel turn of events. And Carol actually did say 
that she felt like her husband was trying to kill her again, even though he wasn't there. She just couldn't get away from that man. So following the shooting, Carol was obviously in quite a bad state, both physically and mentally. She had a long recovery ahead of her, but she was determined to carry on with her life as normally as she could. And she wanted a job. She wanted a job that she would be able to do in her frail state. And she did actually find a job working in a call center for a cable TV channel, something like that. And she was over the moon with this job because it was a job that suited her lifestyle the way her lifestyle was. And it was a way as well that she could still have her independence. But this job at the call center was how she actually re-met Reggie. So Reggie called up this call center. He was clearly a customer in some way. Um, he called up the call center and who answered the phone to him? Carol. And when he said like his name, Reggie Sumner, Carol was like, oh my God, is this the Reggie Sumner from high school? The Reggie Sumner that was my boyfriend in high school. And that's obviously when Reggie realized who she was. And from that moment on, like they talked on the phone. I don't know if they talked on the phone while she was still at work, but I don't know. I read that they talked for hours on the phone and from that phone call, they did arrange a little date. And from that date, they just picked up where they left off. They rekindled their love. And this was 40 years after they'd last seen each other, which is just crazy to me. And they were currently both in their fifties and they were just so over the moon to have found each other again. And within the year, they were also married. And in the early 2000s, they did settle into a house in Charleston, South Carolina. And this is where they end up living next door to Tiffany's dad. And this is how they met Tiffany. And like I said earlier, once Carol and Reggie knew that Tiffany's dad was in such poor health and they knew that Tiffany was one of the main people looking after him, they did take Tiffany under their wing and they supported her as much as they possibly could. They wanted to do whatever they could to help. And this really is the kind of people that Reggie and Carol were. They were just the kind of people that you could ask for help and they would always be there. It didn't matter if you were a neighbor or a stranger. They really would do anything for anyone. And I'm not joking now, I'm not just saying that. That is the kind of people they were. Reggie and Carol were also incredibly close to their own family, especially Carol's daughter, Rhonda, who also did live in Charleston. And she would spend a lot of time with her mom. And even if she wasn't physically with her mom, they would speak on the phone every single day without fail. However, in February of 2005, Reggie and Carol decided that they wanted to move to Jacksonville, Florida. And this is after four years of them being married. And it said that they just wanted to enjoy their retirement. Now, I've also read reports that they wanted to move to Jacksonville because of their house. Now, I'm not sure why. Like, I don't know if there was particular medical facilities in Jacksonville that would help them or whether the kind of lifestyle that they would lead in Jacksonville, maybe the climate was just better suited to their current situation. I don't know. But the couple were in pretty bad health at this point. Reggie did have quite severe diabetes and Carol was also undergoing chemotherapy for her liver cancer. And in the preparation of the moving, they decided they wanted to sell their car. And Tiffany said that she would like to buy it. She needed a car. However, at the time, Tiffany didn't have any money to pay them, but because of of who Tiffany was to the couple. I mean, she was literally like a daughter to them. They arranged for Tiffany to pay them for the car in monthly installments, which they obviously wouldn't do for just anyone. They were only doing that because it was Tiffany. And they also told Tiffany that they wanted to keep in touch with her. They wanted to see her. And if she was ever near Jacksonville, she should pop in. She was always welcome and she was always welcome to stay at the house. So after Carol and Reggie left and moved to Jacksonville, Tiffany 
carried on caring for her father with her mother. Then in May of 2005, Tiffany met Michael Jackson. Michael James Jackson to be exact, not Michael Jackson. I just sometimes wonder like what it's like to have the same name as somebody extremely famous like Michael Jackson. I actually have a neighbor um, who has the exact same name as an A-list celebrity and I'm not going to say his name obviously. And I just wonder like does it get annoying? Like do you want to change your name? Because every time you say your name to someone like someone always makes a comment or I don't know. I just always sometimes wonder what it's like. Like do any of you have the exact same name as someone famous? Like let me know. Does it get annoying like people commenting or do people not comment? I don't no, let me know. So Tiffany met Michael in a hotel lobby. She was staying there because she had just gone away for a little trip with her friends to the beach. And Tiffany and Michael hit it off straight away. They ended up spending the rest of the weekend together and they continued to see each other after this trip. But their relationship was more of a casual relationship. Tiffany has made it clear that they both made it clear to each other at the very beginning that it was nothing serious. It was just something fun. It was basically just like a little fling, like nothing too serious. And a few weeks after they started seeing each other, Michael mentioned that he wanted to go visit his friend Alan Wade who did live in Jacksonville Florida and he said to Tiffany like do you want to come and Tiffany was like oh my god that's where Carol and Reggie live yes I want to come and we can probably stay with them because they said to me that I could stay with them anytime I want so they arrive in Jacksonville and Carol and Reggie are so accommodating they open up their home they are so happy to have Tiffany there and obviously they see Michael as Tiffany's boyfriend and they think oh well if he's hanging around with Tiffany we love Tiffany she's such an amazing person like Michael must be a really good person as well so they of course welcome Michael into their home as well and during their stay for some reason the conversation kind of turned on to the sale of Reggie and Carol's home and Reggie did mention to Michael and Tiffany that they had made quite a decent profit off of selling their house in Charleston and Reggie also did tell Tiffany and Michael that they had around a hundred thousand dollars sitting in their bank account because that was the profit that they made off of their house. And literally as soon as Reggie let slip how much money they had in the bank, Michael's ears instantly pricked up. And this is when Michael started to form his absolutely horrific plan. Michael basically decided that he wanted that money for himself. And he also decided that Reggie and Carol would be the perfect victims for his crime because of how vulnerable they were. So later on that evening when Michael and Tiffany were in their room, Michael told Tiffany his plan and she seemed up for it as well. During the rest of the stay, Michael started to take note of all of the different belongings that actually were in the house that he wanted to steal. Obviously he wanted to steal the $100,000, but he also wanted to actually steal their possessions as well. So after they left Reggie and Carol's house over the few weeks after, this is when Michael started to form his evil plan. So initially the plan was just to rob the Sumners, he wanted their money and he wanted some of their belongings, but it wasn't long until the plan turned darker. He told Tiffany that the plan should be to rob the Sumners. And not just that, he thought the plan should be to murder them as well. And I honestly cannot tell you why he decided this. I don't know why the plan escalated. It's not like Reggie and Carol did anything to him. They didn't do anything to Tiffany. It's one thing to try and rob people, which is obviously completely wrong in itself, but then to take it that one step further for no no reason whatsoever. I don't know why it did escalate.
So like I said, in the few weeks after the visit to the Sumner's house, Michael was forming his evil plan. And during this, he decided that Tiffany and himself were gonna need some help in this plan. So he decided to recruit two of his friends. Alan Wade, who was the friend that Michael and Tiffany were visiting when they did go to Jacksonville. And then the other one was Bruce Nixon. Now at this point in time, Alan Wade did know the whole plan. He knew that the plan was to rob the Sumners and also to murder them. Bruce Nixon at this point in the plan didn't know anything about the murder aspect of the plan. He just knew about the robbery, which obviously in itself is still bad, but Bruce didn't know anything at this time about the murder. So the group start getting everything prepared for the robbery. They start to buy uh, the tools that they need, such as gloves, duct tape, a plastic wrap. Tiffany had also rented a Mazda sports car, um, and this is what they were going to use to drive to the Sumner's house. Now, I don't know why she did this. I don't know if she thought, oh, if I rent a car, they're not going to be able to trace it back to me, which is obviously very stupid, but um, they decided to rent a car to carry out their plan. And during their planning, the group decided that they were going to carry out their plan on the 8th of July, 2005. Two days prior to the 8th of July, the group drove over state lines into Georgia and they found a forest that was just over the border that the group dug a grave that was six feet deep. And this was the grave that they were going to put Reggie and Carol in. I do know that Alan, Michael and Tiffany were at the grave dig and I think Bruce was there as well. And I assume because Bruce was there at the grave dig that at this point in the plan, he did know that the plan was to murder them because why else would you dig a six foot grave? So it's now the 8th of July, 2005, the day that they plan to carry out the robbery and murder. And the group arrive outside of Reggie and Carol's house in the Mazda Sports car. Tiffany had spoken to the group about how trusting Carol and Reggie were and how they were the kind of people that would help literally anyone and the group planned to use this to their advantage. So Alan and Bruce got out of the car and they went and knocked on the front door of the Sumner household. Michael and Tiffany did stay in the car because if Michael and Tiffany had gone, obviously the Sumners would recognize them. Inside the Sumner household, Reggie and Carol had just started to wind down for the evening and they were actually in the kitchen cooking their evening meal together. And this is when Alan and Bruce knock on the front door and it is Carol that goes to answer the door. Alan and Bruce give Carol a fake story that their car has broken down a couple of blocks down and their phone clearly isn't working and whether they could come in and use Carol's phone to phone help. And of course, because Carol and Reggie are both the kind of people that would help anybody, they say, yes, come in, use the phone. And at some point as well, Reggie did come to the front door as well. He probably heard his wife talking to people that he didn't recognize at the front door and he came just to like see if everything was okay. But of course he heard what was going on. He heard this story and he didn't suspect anybody because he was a very trusting person. But as soon as Alan and Bruce entered the house, they turned on Carol and Reggie. I don't know if it was Alan or Bruce, but one of them pulled out a toy gun that did look very, very real. And they instantly started threatening Carol and Reggie and telling them if they don't follow their instructions, they're gonna get hurt. And understandably, like anyone would be, Carol and Reggie were absolutely terrified. I mean, Reggie and Carol are very vulnerable due to their health. They literally had no way of fighting off Alan and Bruce, but also they literally had no way of 
running away either, like fight or flight. They literally couldn't do either. So they both did exactly what Alan and Bruce asked. And I think they probably were both just hoping for the best. Like they were just hoping like, if we just do exactly what they want, hopefully like we'll get out of this okay. So Alan immediately disables the phone lines and then he uses duct tape to bind Reggie and Carol's hands and feet. He also places the duct tape over their mouth and eyes. And it was at this point that Michael entered the house. And remember, he had made a note of everything that he wanted to steal. So he started to go around the house collecting all of the items that he had handpicked himself, which included Reggie's coin collection. He also knew like where all of the documents were that he needed, like he knew where bank cards were. He gathered any other important financial documents that he may need. I don't know exactly how long this whole process took, but after Michael had finished going through the house, Alan, Michael and Bruce did take Reggie and Carol into the garage. And the three of them put Reggie and Carol in the boot of their own car, which was a Lincoln Town car. And I just can't even imagine what oh, the terror that is going through Reggie and Carol right now. I mean, they can't see, they have duct tape over their eyes. They just don't know what's going on. I can't even imagine. They must have been absolutely terrified. And then Alan and Bruce got into the Lincoln Town car to drive it away. And Michael went back to Tiffany, who was still in the Mazda. Tiffany never went into the house. Uh, from what is reported anyway, Tiffany never went into the house during this whole attack. And then the group in the two different cars drove over state lines into Georgia and they drove to that wooded area where they had dug the grave just two days prior and when they arrived at the destination they opened the boot of the Lincoln Town car and somehow Reggie and Carol had managed to kind of get free a little bit of their restraints and this truly just breaks my heart in the boot together they were hugging each other, comforting each other, and they were praying. The group didn't even care that Carol and Reggie had gotten free of their restraints because they knew how weak both of them were and they knew that they wouldn't be able to fight them off. And when I read things like that, it just makes me so angry. I just don't know how people can think like this, especially when it's vulnerable people. But it was probably at this point that both Reggie and Carol realized who was behind this attack because they saw Michael and Tiffany and oh my god can you imagine the heartbreak Carol and Reggie took Tiffany under their wing they treated Tiffany like she was a daughter to them and to see that someone that you had cared so deeply for that you had helped and supported for a very long time turn on you in this kind of way is heartbreaking so Reggie and Carol are placed at the side of the grave that had been dug and Michael starts threatening them and he wants their bank details. He wants their PIN numbers for all of their accounts. And Reggie gives them up without hesitation because Reggie is clearly in the mindset of if I just give them everything they want, hopefully we will get out of this alive. However, very sadly, this doesn't happen. After Reggie has given up this information, both Reggie and Carol are thrown into the grave. And what happens next? Oh my God. It's, it's just it's just absolutely horrible. Like I said, this is probably one of the worst things you could do to somebody. When Carol and Reggie have been thrown into this grave, Alan and Michael start shoveling dirt into the grave. And I just wanna point out that this whole process of filling in this grave would have been such a slow process. This would have been absolutely torturous to Reggie and Carol, but regardless, Alan and Michael shoveling in this dirt. Why did it not go through their heads? 
what the hell are we doing? Let's stop. Like this would have taken a very long time. At any moment they could have stopped, but they didn't. They carried on shoveling this dirt in and the dirt was rising and rising and the dirt started to cover Reggie and Carol's chest and the weight of it was making it pretty much impossible to breathe and eventually the dirt covered their mouth and their head and they started to swallow the dirt and inhale the dirt and this in the end just suffocated them and I just I can't I, this is absolutely horrific and during this by the way the shoveling in Tiffany was just stood there watching and after this absolutely horrific murder the group fled in the Sumner's car. They disposed of the car. They tried to clean up the car to try and clean up any evidence that could be left in there. They drove it to Sanderson, Florida, and this is just where they ditched it. So clearly someone had drove the Mazda car, the rented car that they had, because after they ditched the Sumner's car, they all got into the rented car and they went back to the Sumner household to steal even more items. I just, I can't, I can't with this. It's like, didn't you get enough the first time? So this time when they went back to the Sumner household, they stole items such as jewelry, computers, and literally only a few hours after the murder, they started to pawn off these stolen items. Within hours as well of the murder, they were going around to different ATM machines, drawing out loads of money from each machine, getting out around a thousand dollars. And can you believe this? I mean, obviously the whole thing is sick, but can you believe after they did all of this, they rented a limo? Oh my God, seriously. They rented a limo and there are actually pictures of them in this limo celebrating, partying, having fun. L literally they're acting like they just won the lottery. They're not acting like they just sadistically killed an innocent couple. After the murder and kidnap, it didn't take long for Rhonda, who is Carol's daughter, to notice that something wasn't right. Like I said, she speaks to her mom pretty much every single day on the phone. When she couldn't get hold of her mom and she hadn't heard from her for 24 hours, she knew that something wasn't right. And I can totally understand this because I speak to my nan without fail every single day. And if I couldn't get hold of her or she couldn't get hold of me, we would both know that something wasn't right. And after the second day that Rhonda couldn't get hold of her mom, she decided that she needed to do something. She decided to make the journey from Charleston to Jacksonville just to see if everything was okay. When she arrived at the house, she noticed that the car was gone. The dog was also still in the house. The dog was on its own. And what was just really weird is that Carol and Reggie's medication was still just out on the side. And Reggie has severe diabetes. Diabetes. Like he does not go out of the house without his medication. So along with the medication was also Carol's mobile phone, which was obviously why Rhonda couldn't get hold of her. But on top of the medication and the phones being left, there was just dinner half cooked in the kitchen. Remember when Alan and Bruce originally knocked on the door? Carol and Reggie were in the middle of cooking dinner and Rhonda started to panic. She knew immediately that something bad had happened. I don't quite know where her mind went, but she knew something bad had happened. She knew that her mom wouldn't just leave the house, 
with the dinner half cooked in the kitchen, unless it was an emergency. But if it was an emergency, she would have phoned a daughter to tell her what was going on. So Rhonda phoned the police straight away. And the police immediately think that something suspicious has happened as well, just with the way that the house has been left and everything. I assume, because I didn't read this, but I assume that Rhonda and the police did notice that the house had been robbed as well. So because the car is missing, this is where the police start because they know that they should be able to track down where this car is. And it doesn't actually take the police that long to track down the car because the group had just left it abandoned on the side of the road and obviously it was reported and the police actually found it pretty easily. So when the police found the car just abandoned on the side of the road, the police start to panic a little bit more. I think before finding the car, they were just hoping that the Sumners had taken off for whatever reason but now that they found their car they're starting to become a little bit worried and this is when they put out a missing persons report and try and get help from the public so they put out the descriptions of the Sumners and the car and everything and hope that someone knows something and this is on the 12th of July that this missing report goes out. So this is four days after the kidnap and murder of Reggie and Carol. Obviously the police and Rhonda don't know this right now. So literally the same day that the missing person report and everything goes out, there is a phone call to the sheriff's office and the man on the other end of the line just says, uh, hi, this is Reggie Sumner. And I can imagine that instantly the police probably felt relieved. However, that relief quickly fades because they realize Hold on a minute, Reggie Sumner is 61 currently. This person on the phone doesn't sound like a 61 year old man. He sounds quite young, like in his 20s or something. And who was it on the phone? You guessed it, Michael James Jackson. So Michael pretending to be Reggie starts by telling the police that everything is fine. Him and his wife are not missing. They just decided to take a sudden trip to Delaware. And then he explains that his neighbor has phoned him up because apparently his car has been stolen whilst they have been away. So obviously that would explain why they found the abandoned car because it got stolen. Clearly Michael thinks that he can outsmart the police here and the police are not being fooled by any of this. They kind of go along with this story because they want to get as much information out of Michael. They don't know it's Michael, but they want to get as much information out of Michael as they possibly can. So they keep him talking. And the police ask Reggie, Michael, uh, where are you staying in Delaware? And Michael gives them this town's name and the police are like, that's not a real place. And then the police say to Reggie, Michael, can we speak to your wife, Carol? Like, is she there? Is she okay? And a woman comes on the phone and you guessed it, it's Tiffany. Is this Carol? Yes, that is. You doing all right? Mm-hmm. Just really tired. I understand. I understand that you may have some health problems. Mm-hmm. Cancer. Cancer. And liver. So the police know that these are imposters, but they do double check and they play the phone call to Rhonda just to double check that this wasn't her mom and Reggie. And Rhonda does confirm that, yeah, that's not my mom. So the police now know that these people are responsible for the disappearance of Reggie and Carol and we need to track them down straight away. And even though the police hadn't actually gotten that much information out of the phone call, what they did have though 
was the phone number of the mobile that had called the police. So the police request the phone records for this number. They also start looking into the bank accounts of both Reggie and Carol, and they see that large sums of money have been taken out at various ATM machines. So they go to the ATM machines that do have cameras and they see Michael, they don't know it's Michael, but they see a young man at the ATM machine withdrawing money from Reggie and Carol's account. And also from the footage that the police got, they could see that this young male had gone out of the passenger side of a silver Mazda sports car. So at this point, the police now have access to the phone records of that mobile phone and they go through all of the numbers that this mobile has called and they stumble across a number to a car rental company and they phone up the company and they're like, we need all the information you can give us from the person that has clearly rented a car using this mobile number. And what do you know, the car rental company said, oh, a silver Mazda was rented out using that number. And obviously the police know about this silver Mazda from the ATM machine camera. And the police were expecting the person that rented this silver Mazda to be that young man that they saw on the footage, but it wasn't. It was Tiffany Cole. And not only this, the car rental company said that they could actually track all of their cars and they would be able to tell the police the exact location of this silver Mazda and that it was currently at a motel in South Carolina. So the police head straight to the motel and thankfully they arrived in time, they hadn't already left. So they went to the room that Tiffany Cole was staying in and when the police entered the room, they found Tiffany, but they also found Michael James Jackson and Alan Wade. And inside the room, the police find so much evidence. They find the car keys to the Lincoln Town car. They find Reggie's coin collection. They also find the Sumner's financial documents and bank cards and all stuff like that. And immediately the police arrest all three of them. However, at this point, the police still don't know what has happened to Carol and Reggie. Like they don't know right now that they have been murdered. So this is their biggest priority right now, finding Carol and Reggie. Police immediately start interrogating Michael, Alan and Tiffany. Michael and Alan are not saying a word and Tiffany starts by not saying anything, but then she breaks under the interrogation and she lets slip that there was a fourth member of the group that took part in whatever they did. And that was Bruce Nixon. The police then go and arrest Bruce and bring him in for questioning as well. And unlike the other three, Bruce is willing to talk. He tells the police the whole story. He tells the police that the initial plan was just to commit a robbery of Reggie and Carol and that he thought that it was just going to be a robbery. But it turns out that Michael had other plans. And this is when Bruce tells the police that the four of them took Reggie and Carol to the forest in Georgia and that they buried them alive. And the police are like, what? Like they can't believe what they're hearing because this just doesn't happen. Obviously murder happens way too much, but burying people alive, it, like it's rare. It, it doesn't happen very often. And Bruce took the police to the grave where they buried Carol and Reggie. So they started to dig up this grave and they did eventually find Reggie and Carol, and they found them under two feet of dirt. And when Reggie and Carol were found, they were found still hugging, which is just so, so sad. It's just, I, it's, there's no words. This is absolutely horrific. 
Like I said, Reggie and Carol's love story is like something from a movie, like they finally found each other and then they were killed in this horrific way. It's just so incredibly sad. And the police that were involved in this investigation have said that this is the worst crime, the worst murder that they have ever seen. It was just so cold and calculated and it was just all for money. Like, it's just horrible. And an autopsy was done on Carol and Reggie and it was found that they were buried alive. Like that is the cause of death because there was so much dirt in their lungs, like inside them, they were buried alive. So following Bruce's confession, all four of them were charged with murder and their trial took place in October of 2007. Now, Michael, Tiffany and Alan all pled not guilty. And Tiffany said that she was completely innocent, that she was in an abusive relationship with Michael and that she didn't have any control like he controlled her and she didn't have anything to do with this. Uh, she didn't plan it, she didn't wanna do it nothing. But please remember that I didn't do this. I'm not the monster that created this, but I am sorry I met him. Judge Weatherby, I'm not asking for justice, but rather mercy. The same mercy that God has continues to give me. I believe that there are many more people that I can reach out to with God's guidance and your mercy. Tiffany actually said that she didn't have a clue that the plan was to murder Reggie and Carol. She thought that they were just going to rob them and that she thought they had dug that grave to bury the stolen items. It, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, do you think you're a pirate or something? However, Bruce testified against Tiffany and he said that she was involved in the planning, everything. And she was at the graveside when the Sumners were being buried alive. The jury were also shown the picture of Tiffany celebrating in the limo after the murder, which is pretty damning, isn't it? The jury did find Tiffany, Michael and Alan guilty of murder and Bruce did plead guilty to second degree murder, so he didn't have a trial. Throughout the whole investigation, he fully cooperated. He also so showed remorse, he apologized to the family and he received 45 years in prison for second degree murder. Now the other three that were found guilty by jury of murder were given the death penalty. For Tiffany, the jury voted nine to three in favor of the death penalty. In Michael's case, the jury voted eight to four in favor of the death penalty. And then in Alan's case, the jury voted 11 to one for the death penalty, which honestly doesn't make sense to me. I feel like Michael was definitely the mastermind behind all of this, yet he seemed to come out on top of that jury-like decision. Like, I know he still got the death penalty, but he got eight to four. Tiffany got nine to three and Alan got 11 to one. Like that doesn't really make sense to me, but whatever, they all got the death penalty. Tiffany was age 25 when she got the death penalty, which made her one of the youngest women on death row in the US. Michael was also 25 and Alan and Bruce were 20, by the way, if you wanted to know their ages at the time of the murder. And whilst Tiffany was on death row, she actually did an interview with Diane Sawyer where she continued to plead her innocence and saying that she was in an abusive relationship. I am not the same person anymore. I have peace, I have joy. I have a sound mind. And Tiffany herself feels like she has been unfairly judged. I don't know where she's got that from. Tiffany has made many appeals against her death penalty sentence. And in 2017, the Florida Supreme Court actually revoked 
her death penalty sentence. And this was because a 2016 ruling in the Supreme Court actually said that a jury should be unanimous when deciding on the death penalty. And the jury weren't unanimous in Tiffany, Michael, or Alan's sentencing. And all three of them got their death penalty sentence changed to life without parole. Also something that I find absolutely ridiculous. So Alan Wade actually featured on a reality show called Love Don't Judge because he's found love whilst he was on death row. This was obviously before his death penalty got revoked. And Alan is actually now married and he has a child with that woman. Con I can't ever say that word, conjugal. I can't say it. Conjugal visits aren't allowed in the prison that Alan is in. So I don't know how they made that happen. And get this, get this, this really annoyed me. The mother, the wife of Alan, the mother of Alan's child has actually complained about how hard it is to bring up a child without a father. It's like you knew what you were getting into. Like, what were you expecting? Alan and his wife are only allowed to speak on the phone once a month, but she regularly sends him videos of their son. But of course, the real tragedy of this case is how Carol and Reggie were taken and they were taken way too soon. And it's honestly just so sad. Like I said, they finally found each other again and they finally had their life and they found each other and they were in love and they were married and they moved to Jacksonville to enjoy their life. Carol's daughter, Rhonda, keeps the ashes of Carol and Reggie together so they can be together forever. And it actually says that on their gravestone as well. And for each case that I do, I try to really look into the psychology behind certain cases and behind certain crimes and stuff. And I tried my best to find answers as to why somebody would bury someone alive because I just cannot wrap my head around it. But I truly couldn't find any concrete answers. I have my theories as to why someone would bury someone alive, but I couldn't find anything concrete. And obviously I'm no expert, even in my degree when I did it. Like burying people alive never came up. I don't think it did anyway. So if any of you can enlighten me on why someone would bury someone alive, please let me know. The only thing that I can think of is that it's almost a way for the person to detach from the murder. And it's, I was going to say it's less personal, but it's not, is it? Because Tiffany knew Reggie and Carol and she just stood there at the graveside while it was being filled in. And that seems personal to me. So I was just about to say that it was detached and not personal, but no, in this case anyway, because Tiffany knew the victims, this was 100% personal. Maybe in other cases where the person burying someone alive doesn't know the victim, I don't know, maybe it is a way to detach from the crime. Yeah, I don't really know how to end this case because it's honestly, it's messed me up. But this one has, oh God, it's, it's horrible. And that brings us to the end of the episode on Tiffany Cole. And I actually do have a few quick updates in this case. In 2023, Tiffany Cole had to be resentenced yet again because of a change in Florida law. It was thought that she might even end up getting the death penalty again. But in the end, she didn't. She still had life without parole. However, Michael also had to go and be resentenced because of the change in Florida law and his sentence 
did get changed to the death penalty. So he went from life without parole to now being back on death row. So those were the updates for today's case. So thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would really mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you have been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in the next one.